Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Tonight's presentation is a hot topic, Jesus on Hell. So let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to guide our time in His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this time that we can meet together and to study Your Word. Lord, we pray that You will please illuminate our minds and help us to truly grasp what the Bible says about this topic very clearly. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll please send us your spirit during this time of study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Have you ever visited hell? How many of you guys have visited hell before? Um, You know, thousands. Did you know (laughs) that thousands of people visit hell every year? And most of them hope that they do not have to stay very long. And it's it's extremely hot, a barren, jagged landscape. And you certainly would not want to spend the rest of your life in the extreme heat of this desolate place. And you guys are probably wondering what I'm talking about. But it's actually a real place called hell. Did you know that? Hell is a group of short, short black limestone formations located in the Grand Cayman, in the Cayman Islands. For thousands uh, and thousands of tourists visit there every year. And it's located in the West Bay, and it is about half the size of an American football field. Viewing platforms allow visitors to take photographs of this amazing geological formation. And it's a unique formation which is characterized by jagged, spongy pinnacles of black-covered limestone. And this formation is produced when algae interact with the limestone present at this location, and it creates a decaying, death-like appearance on the rock formations. It almost appears as, as if the entire place was scorched and completely destroyed. And there are numerous versions of how hell received its name, but the most popular is the idea that when people look at this blackened, desolate location, they exclaimed... My, this is, my, this is what hell must look like. <laughs> and it's also claimed that the name hell is derived from the fact that if a pebble is thrown into this formation, it echoes among the limestone peaks and valleys and sounds after the, as if the pebble, pebble is falling down all the way down to hell. <laughs> and so, regardless of how this place was first called hell, the name stuck. And the area has become a tourist attraction featuring a fire engine, red hell-themed post office from which you can send postcards from hell and a gift shop with souvenirs from hell. Ironically, some of the stores in the area feature prominent quotations from the Bible on their sides. And maybe it's time to discover tonight what hell really is like. And so let's take a look at our first question today. 
Number one says, is hell a hot spot in the center of the earth? So are millions of people suffering there right now? You know, some people believe that hell is like somewhere in the core of the earth or some sort of chasm under the earth and it's a hot place, it's a place of burning and people are being sent down there and they're being tortured. And the question is, would a loving God torture people in hell for millions of years? Let's see what the Bible really says about hell, shall we? And we will discover something far more amazing than a desolate location called hell on the Cayman Islands. And I'd like to reiterate what we have gone through every night as we prepare to open the Bible. We want to follow the model. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me, right? That's a theme of these meetings. And so... You know, believe it or not, many traditions about hell actually disagree with the very plain statements about God's judgments that we'll find in the Bible. And so, the book of Revelation describes a lake of fire on the surface of the earth. Where? On the surface of the earth. Not in the chasm below or underground in the core of the earth, but on the surface of the earth. A huge inferno in which those who are at war with God are consumed. And here's how it describes that destruction of those who, led by Satan, try to take the city of God at the end of the millennium, which is what we studied last night. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to page 1188. Revelation 20, verse 9. Page 1188. Where is hell? Is hell a hot spot in the center of the earth? Is that what the Bible says? Let's take a look at page 1188, Revelation 20, verse 9. Where is hell? And we're going to have table number one. Read that for us. And, and everyone at your tables, select someone or a volunteer to be ready to read. Okay? All right, Revelation 20, verse 9. Thank you. So we see that very clearly, where does hell take place? Where does hellfire occur? On the earth. Yes or no? Based on this text, it's very clear that it's taking place on the surface of the earth, right? It's not taking place underground somewhere. It's not taking place in some interdimensional chamber where God has assigned that place to be a hot place or a place of burning. We see that in our study on the millennium, we learn that when Jesus returns to earth, he resurrects the righteous dead, those who committed their lives to him during their lifetime. And these come forth from their graves and rise to meet him in the air. Together with the righteous living, they ascend to heaven and spend there, uh, the, the, a thousand years there with him. And those who have rejected the Holy Spirit, speaking to their hearts, are now terrified at the second coming. And these cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, and they're slain by the brightness of Christ's coming. And during the thousand years, the earth is desolate of all human life. And Satan is bound there with his wicked angels for the entire millennium. 
And at the end of the thousand years, we learned last night, an amazing display of both power and grace moves the very headquarters of the universe to this planet that has been the scene of such rebellion and suffering. So we see that the final events, based on what we learned last night, was that the holy city descends. The wicked, are dis- are, 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 the wicked dead are resurrected. Satan and his followers attack the city, and the wicked are devoured by flames, which was the text that Scott just read for us right now. And so, verse 9 continues... Uh, where it says, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This takes place on earth, on the surface of the earth, right? And the Bible describes this judgment as the second death. As the what? Second death. And so if we go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. What resurrection is that? The first resurrection. The resurrection of life, right? The resurrection of life. We, want to be, we all want to be part of that first resurrection. <laughs> we don't want to be part of the resurrection of damnation, which is the second resurrection, right? And it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. If you're part of the first resurrection, the second death, you are invincible, towards the second death. The second death cannot touch you if you, have, if you are part of the first resurrection. And question number two, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of the second death? And so we might describe it this way. We see that the first death is a death that we each die as the natural result of living in a sinful world. Sin brings death, and all are susceptible to death. Is that right? Yes. But we see that the second death, however, is an eternal death. It's the result of personal rebellion against God. The second death results not simply because we were born into a world of sin, but because we have chosen the way of sin, the way of rebellion. The eternal death occurs at the end of the thousand years. And the wicked are now resurrected at the end of the thousand years. And we learned last night when Satan and all the wicked that are resurrected, they attack the city as they are about to uh, assault that new Jerusalem. The records of their lives are shown before God. They recognize that God is fair, God is just, and at that moment... Fire comes down from God out of heaven and a lake of fire occurs outside the city. And they experience the second death. And out of the ashes of the old world, God creates the new world. Listen to the description given to that, of that new world. We're going to go to table number three. And the rest of us, let's turn to Revelation 21, verse 1, page 1189. If you're there from our last verse, it should just be one page over. Revelation 21, 1, page 1189. Listen to the description of the new world. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Ah, so we see that God creates what? After the fires 
of hell does its work, what happens next? God creates a new heavens and a new earth. Wow. Can you imagine if we are there in the city and we see the destruction of the world? God destroys the world and purges it with fire. And then we are going to be able to witness, if we are there, we're going to witness God creating everything. A new heavens and a new earth. That's going to be spectacular. That's going to be wonderful to be able to see God at work and see His creative power at work as He, see, as he recreates the earth without sin again. And Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, let's read on a few verses down, same page. Um, 1189, and we're going to have table number 5. Someone could read that for us. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. We just learned that God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And what's going to happen next? Okay, now get this verse. This verse is very interesting. It says that when God creates a new heavens and a new earth, it says that there will be no more what? No more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. No more pain. For the former things have passed away. What does it mean that it's passed away? It's no more, right? Yes or no? Yes. So, get this. (laughs) Just these two verses alone. Revelation 21, verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 4. If you believe, if you believe that hell burns forever and ever throughout eternity, you will have to explain these two verses. Because, number one, if hell takes place on the surface of the earth, which we just read, does it take place on the surface of the earth? Yes or no? The Bible tells us that, so we believe that, right? If hell takes place on the surface of the earth, how can God recreate the heavens and the earth if it's still burning? Does that make sense? If, the, if hell is on this earth and the hell is going to be burning forever and ever, then how and when will God ever get around to creating a new earth? Are you following? It just doesn't make sense. And if hell burns forever, number two, how can there be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain or how can the former things where those people who have sinned and Satan be passed away? Are those good questions? Are those good points? These two verses alone in Revelation tell us very clearly that hell cannot be burning forever and ever. And we're going to look at to this more, but those are the two key things that I just can, cannot get around. I talk to people who believe in the ever-burning hell, and I bring up these two verses, and they're kind of puzzled. They cannot explain that. They stammer a little bit. They're like, oh, well, uh, uh, and they can't explain it. And the Bible makes sense. <laughs> if we just take what the Bible says. And you see, the reason why God allows the fires of hell to be extinguished is eventually He wants to deal with sin once and for all. He wants to do away with it forever. 
He doesn't want to perpetuate sin for the ceaseless ages through the ever-burning torment of the sinners and Satan. He's going to make an end of it completely. God wants to do away with sin. He wants to do away with suffering, pain, and physical affliction forever. And by the way, how can heaven be heaven? If you're up there in heaven and one of your loved ones is lost and they're being burned forever and ever, can you truly revel in the bliss and peace of heaven knowing that your loved one is still writhing in agony through the fires of hell? And you come to God and say, God, how much longer are they going to be burning? Well, they're going to be burning forever. Does that make sense? How will every tear be wiped away and there'll be no more pain, no more suffering? It just doesn't make sense. We just got to take what the Bible says. Amen? Amen. God wants to do, with, do away with suffering forever. He wants to do away with pain forever. God wants to do away with physical affliction forever. But what about the lake of fire? What about hell? How can you take a lake of fire burning on the surface of the earth forever and have an earth made new? We talked about that. How can Jesus wipe away all tears from our eyes if our lost loved ones are continually burning in unimaginable torment forever? It's absolutely amazing that some Christians want to hold on to the idea of God burning people for hell in hell for trillions of years. And trillions and trillions of years. Question number three. Would you want to torment your worst enemy for trillions of years? Don't answer this out loud. (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) Do you know that many evangelical Christian leaders are discovering the truth about hell just as we're studying it today? I will share with you some of their findings of these people. If you go to a Christian bookstore today, Many leading scholars are writing, writing, triestis, uh, writing uh, these books on truth of what the Bible teaches about hell. For example, Dr. John Stott, the respected and world-famous Anglican Bible expositor and author, rejects the doctrine of an eternal burning hell through his study from the Bible. It's very clear to him that the Bible does not endorse a forever burning hell. And we see also there is Dr. Edward Fudge, a well-respected Bible scholar. He was Baptist. I I believe he's still Baptist. And he completed a well-documented comprehensive study on the biblical truth on hell entitled The Fire That Consumes. His book tells us that hell completely consumes sin and sinners forever. I mean, uh, completely, right? And, they're, and, they're, and, and they are completely annihilated forever, right? So they're finding this out just by studying the Bible and seeing what the Bible clearly teaches on this. And friends, where did this idea of ever-burning hell come from? We need to ask that question. The idea of an ever-burning hell for trillions of years is really a pagan doctrine. And it's a blasphemy to the love of God. You know, the concept all begins with the soul. Remember we talked about this in in the talk about the death, right? That what you believe about the soul will help make you also come to a different conclusion of what you believe about hell. Did you know that? And so we see that the concept of the soul that is within us, that cannot die, first came 
as became a Christian doctrine. It wasn't a Christian doctrine before. The Bible never says that we possess a soul. The Bible says we are souls. There's a difference. Right? But they but this this uh, teaching that came into crept into Christianity long ago that that we possess a soul began at the end of the second century AD. In the second century of the early church, this doctrine crept in. Hell had been taught in Greek philosophy long before the time of Jesus with Plato, the philosopher. From 472 to 337 BC, as an important leader of thinking, he made this idea that hell must burn forever because our souls that we possess will go th- will live forever the immortality of the soul and therefore the soul will continue to go through the torment of everlasting hell fire the teaching of an everlasting place of punishment for the wicked is a natural consequence of a belief in an immortal soul by the year AD 187 it was understood that life once we have it is compulsory there is no end to it, either now or in the world to come. That's what they believe. They believe that you will continue to live whether you like it or not. (laughs) And because you're going to continue to live in the afterlife, there's no choice in its continuance. Even if we were to commit suicide to end our lives, we will continue to live in the next life. And that's not what the Bible teaches. At the end of the second century, Christianity has begun to blend Greek philosophy human speculative reasoning with the teaching of God's word. Such words and phrases such as continuance of being, perpetual existence, incapable of dissolution, and incorruption began to appear in so-called Christian writings. And these had come straight from Plato, the Greek philosopher, and other phrases like the soul to remain by itself immortal, an immortal nature. This is taught, this is It was taught that this is how God made us. But this uh, idea derives from philosophy, not from the Bible. And um, Athenagoras, a Christian, uh, he was a Christian philosopher. Although he is Christian, his teachings were strongly tinged with Plato's writings and influence, who had introduced the teaching of an immortal soul to Christianity. And so we see that hundreds of years or more after the time of the apostles, this came straight from philosophy and Greek mythology of the immortal soul, ever-burning hell and Hades. This all trickled into the church and into Christianity from the very early onset of Christianity. And we see that the apostles, they taught that death is asleep, followed by the resurrection. The early church leaders, there's a few of the church leaders that actually believed the same way that the apostles did, like Clement and Ignatius and Hermes and Polycarp and others who believe that death is asleep and taught that the wicked are destroyed forever by fire and their punishment was to be total annihilation. And these leaders did not teach an immortality of the soul to be tortured by fire and hell for eternity. 
And in AD 240, Tertullian of Carthage took up the teaching of an immortal soul, and he popularized that idea of an immortal soul. That when you die, your soul continues to live on, and because it can never die, you're going to go into hell, and if you go to hell, you're going to be burning forever and ever. All this became even more concrete during the Dark Ages. And if you guys did not uh, see that resource that we have, the Protestant Reformation documentary, I suggest you grab that because the, pro- the, 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 uh, the Dark Ages was a time where the Word of God was snuffed out, the light of God's Word. And all these ideas came to be through tradition, superstition, and philosophy. Not based on the Bible, but it was actually based on Greek philosophy and pagan teachings. And so, do the investigation. Ask yourself, why do we believe what we believe? Is it biblical? And you're going to discover that it's not. And many Christians have been asking this question. There's always been this debate whether hell is ever burning or hell is total annihilation. And there are some questions that Christians have asked about hell that we're going to explore tonight. Next question is, when does hell occur? Is anyone burning in hell now? Okay, so that's the question. When does hell occur? And is anyone burning in hell presently? Let's take a look at Malachi 4, verse 1. Page 931. Page 931, Malachi 4, 1. The question is, when does hell occur? And is anyone burning in hell now? We're going to go to table number 6. And we're going to have someone read that for us in table number 6, Malachi 4, verse 1. Malachi 4, 1. All right. So let's review what Olga just read. It says, The day is coming where all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will become what? They will become stubble. What's stubble? Hmm? Stubble is? What's left over after the fire has consumed, right? Right? And it says... It says, then the day which is coming shall burn them forever and ever. Is that what it says? It says, it shall burn them up. That means they are totally what? Consumed. Yes or no? Yes. So this destruction, this is talking about the day which is coming, the day of the Lord, right? The destruction of the wicked occurs when? It's happening at the day of the Lord, which is yet to happen. Yes or no? So how many people are burning in hell right now? No one. Because that day has not come yet. Right? Does the Bible say that the wicked will go to hell when they die? Or are they in hell now? Are they being burned up? My Bible says the day is coming which shall burn them up. 2 Peter 3 verse 7 also indicates that this cleansing of the world by fire is future tense. 
if we look at page 1167, 2 Peter 3, verse 7, don't take my word for it, look at what the Bible says. 2 Peter 3, verse 7, right? Peter's talking about this fire that will purge and destroy. But when is it taking place? Let's take a look at page 1167, 2 Peter 3, verse 7. Page 1167, 2 Peter 3, verse 7. And table number 7 will read this for us, please. 2 Peter 3, 7. Okay, so when is hell to occur, according to this text? Till the day of judgment, right? So it's not happening now, is it? No, it is yet to happen. So if hell were a hot spot in the center of the earth, it wouldn't be reserved. Malachi 4.1 says that the day is coming. 2 Peter 3 verse 7 says they are reserved to judgment. When do the fires occur? At the end of time. If the judgment is future, then the wicked are not burning now. Are you following? So no one's burning in hell now. It's saved on the day that that judgment happens and that it t- takes place when? When Jesus returns, right? When Jesus returns. Question number five. How long does hell last? Okay. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29 says this about God. It says that God is a consuming fire. So God is a consuming fire to sin wherever sin is found. Sin cannot exist in His presence It'll be destroyed at his presence, right? So let's take a look back at Malachi 4, verse 3, page 931. Malachi 4, verse 3, page 931. We're going to have table number 8 read that for us. Malachi 4, verse 3, page 931. How long does hell last? Malachi 4, verse 3. Do you have it? Aha. So we see that what will happen after the fires of hell does its work? They will become ashes. Are the fires still burning? No, obviously the fires are out, right? Because it has completed its work, right? So we see that the wicked 
will be turned to ashes. They will not burn continually for millions and trillions of years. God is going to put a total end to sin and hell. And all of the heartache, all of the suffering is going to be over. All the pain is going to be over. When that happens, the purpose of hell is done. And the fires go out, and God makes a new heavens and a new earth. The Bible says that God is going to make an utter end of sin. And this is so clear that He will make an utter end of sin. Now, question number six asks, How can a loving God destroy those He loves? And so we go to John 3.16. We all know this text. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, friends, God does love the wicked as well. He offers the wicked the same chance to accept the plan of salvation that has been complete so that their salvation, their everlasting life is secured. But what must they do to secure it? They must believe in Him. And that doesn't mean just mental assent that I believe God. Yes, you did that for me. I accept that you're God. James tells us that even the devils believe and tremble. But the devils are lost. This kind of belief is where you accept what God can do in your life. That's the belief where you surrender by faith and say, Lord, I want you to do that good work in me. I want to surrender my life completely to you because I know that it's only you that can save me. And when we have that belief and we cling to God by faith and we continue to cling to Him by faith, we see that we will receive that everlasting life as promised in this verse. God in love provides a way of salvation at infinite cost. He gave His only Son because He did not want even one to perish, but that all should have everlasting life. But can you force someone to love in return? Can you? No. You cannot force someone to love you back. And a loving God doesn't bring the unsaved to heaven where there is unselfishness, there's unselfish love because they are filled with selfish hate all their lives. That's all they know. And to live in a world, a new world where none of that's there, is so foreign to them. It's going to be hell to them. And so God gives people the freedom of choice. Therefore, He honors their choice. If they've turned their back on Him, they do not want His love, if they cling to sin, if they go along with their sin, then they will be destroyed with their sin. The idea that God will punish them forever for a few years of hatred and rebellion is not from the Bible. It is a pagan doctrine that came into the church. And here's what the early church taking their pure faith from the Bible, believed. In Psalms chapter 37, verse 20. Let's take a look there. Page 534. Psalms 37, verse 20. Page 534. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord 
splendor of the meadows shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. Ah. So the Bible has many verses like this one that indicate the temporary nature of hell. But then again, somebody can argue, what about the other verses that describe, that seem to describe it in permanent terms? So let's take a look at those. Number seven, what does the Bible mean when it uses the expression everlasting destruction or, everla- or eternal fire? Okay, what does the Bible mean when it uses the expression everlasting destruction or eternal fire? The Bible does not contradict itself. Do you believe that? We take it as a whole. We try to understand how it all fits together to see how this works, friends. Consider the use of the word eternal in talking about the death of Christ on the cross. Okay? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Let's take a look at this. It says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained what kind of redemption? Eternal redemption. Does that mean, friends, since Jesus has secured eternal redemption for us, that He is still hanging on the cross for eternity? No. Jesus is not on the cross. So what does that mean? What it means is that the act of the cross... The effects of the cross are what? Eternal. We read that in the same book in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2. It says, Of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal what? Judgment. At the end of time, there will be a judgment. God doesn't keep judging all throughout eternity. There will be one judgment. And the results of that judgment will be eternal. That's what it's saying. The results of redemption and the results of judgment will be everlasting. The results of the cross are everlasting. Likewise, when God destroys the wicked, it is eternal destruction. The results of their death is everlasting. We see that the same understanding emerges from Jude 1 verse 7. Jude 1 verse 7. Let's turn there. And we're on table number 10, I believe. Jude is right before the book of Revelation. Page 1173. It's a small book. You may miss it. So, there's only one chapter. Look for it. Jude 1.7. 1173. Jude 1.7. And we'll have someone from table 10 read that for us, please. Okay, thank you. So Jude uses which two cities as an example here? Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Where did fire come down from to destroy those two cities? From heaven, right? So it was definitely from God, right? 
And so we see they suffered, Jude tells us, that they suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. Eternal fire. Does that mean that Sodom and Gomorrah are burning tonight even as we meet? No. But it's an eternal fire. Why? Because the effects of the fire were eternal. The fire came down from God out of heaven and consumed or burned up those violent cities. And an eternal fire is one whose effects or results are eternal. The effects of the fire were eternal, not the flames of it. Are you following? Well, then what about everlasting punishment? Let's take a look at that. Matthew 25, verse 45 and 46. Matthew 25, 45 and 46, page 962. Matthew 25, 45 and 46, 962. Table 11 is up next. Matthew 25, 45, 46. Okay, so notice it says these will go away into everlasting what? Punishment. Notice it does not say these will go away into everlasting punishing. Right? It says punishment, which means it is complete. Right? It doesn't mean punishing where it's constantly happening all throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. We see that the punishment is complete. Everlasting punishment. Complete. Everlasting punishment is not everlasting punishing. These two terms are not the same. And we have to see the difference. The Bible never speaks about everlasting punishing. It's not God taking delight in punishing people without end. God does not sit upon His throne in heaven today and say, I told you so. I told you so. You are burning. You are being consumed. You're writhing in the flames. You are just getting what you deserve. I told you so. 1,000 years later, he goes back, I told you so, and so through eternity. What kind of God would do that? Are you willing as a Christian to say that God takes delight in that? That He's going to keep people burning for trillions of years? And the Bible is so plain on this subject. In fact, the Bible even tells us in Philippians 3, 18 and 19 that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is everlasting burning. Is that what it says? It says, whose end is destruction. Right? A state of non-existence. Total annihilation. They are not writhing in agony and torment throughout all the ceaseless ages. And the Greek word for destruction is one of the strongest words in the entire Bible because it means utterly consumed or totally destroyed. You cannot get around that. 
that means complete annihilation. And we see Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. It says, For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to what? Destruction. There's that word again. So the Bible teaches that the wicked are destroyed completely. The fate of the wicked is very plain in the Bible. And I would like you to write these verses down and look at them tonight. Because these verses you cannot get around because the Bible makes it so clear. The fate of the wicked. Number one, Romans 6.23, the wicked will die. Die means complete, blotted out of existence. Romans 6.23. Luke 13.3, the wicked will perish. Perish means complete, utter destruction. Number three, Malachi 4 verse 1, we read this. The wicked will be burned up. All that will be left is stubble and ashes under the feet of the redeemed as the new earth is created. Number four, the wicked in Psalms 37 verse 20 will be utterly consumed. That's a complete finality. We see Malachi 4 verse 3, the wicked will be turned into ashes. I mentioned that. And Obadiah, only one chapter there, verse 16, the wicked will be as though they had not been. That means they no longer exist. Try to picture the time before you were even born. Can you picture the time before you were even born? That's what it's like. As if you have not been. The wicked will be like that. They will be back to the time that as before they were even born. They are blotted out of existence forever. That's what's going to happen to the wicked. An utter end of the wicked. And the Bible says that it'll be though as they had not been. God has given the, them the opportunity to live. God has given them the opportunity to enjoy life. But they have turned their backs on Him. And a loving God cannot take them into heaven to start the rebellion, to start the sin problem all over again. That would be insanity. That would be madness. A loving God has allowed them to live. But due to their rebellion, they will perish. They cannot be fit for heaven. A loving God has appealed to the wicked and the lost to be saved. But this loving God does the best a loving God can do. They're consumed in the presence of holiness. They're consumed in the presence of righteousness. They suffer for their sins. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's no suffering in hell. There is pain. The greatest pain, though, isn't physical. The greatest pain is that agony of knowing that I could have been in heaven. I could have been inside that city. I could have been rejoicing. I could have been living with Christ forever. Eternal joy could have been mine. It was at my fingertips all the time that I was on earth. But now it is all lost. Satan himself will totally be destroyed. Isaiah 47, 14. Satan is gone. His angels are gone. Sin is gone. Satan is not managing heaven, I mean hell. 
Satan's not like managing who gets cooked evenly throughout the ceaseless burning. Satan himself will be destroyed with his evil angels. But what about the concept of the body and the soul? Doesn't the body return to dust, but the soul goes to hell? Well, we should ask Jesus that question. Can we trust Jesus to tell us the truth? I believe so. And take a look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Let's have someone read this for us. I don't have the page number, sorry. But Matthew 10, verse 28. Let's read what Jesus says about the concept of the body and the soul. Does the soul go to hell when the body dies? 944, Matthew 10, 28. And table number 12 is up to read this verse. Matthew 10, 28. Okay, so Jesus tells us that don't fear those who could kill a physical body, but they cannot kill your what? Soul. But fear who? Him. Who's Him? God, who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? Now, according to Jesus, question for you, according to Jesus, which parts of the person's body and soul winds up in hell? Hmm? That's right. Both. Both body and soul are, both parts, according to Jesus, are destroyed in hell. Are you following? So I want you to remember this text as we get to the topic of the rich man and Lazarus later on. I want you to remember this text, all right? Matthew 10, 28. Remember it, because you're going to see how this ties into the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, question number eight. What about the biblical expression, unquenchable fire? Right? Wow, that sounds very scary, right? Unquenchable fire. What, what, what does that mean? That, mean? that seems to imply, some people say that seems to imply that it's going to burn forever, but is that what it's talking about? Let's take a look at Mark chapter 9, verse 43 and 44. If we could have someone read that. Table number one again. Mark 9, 43 and 44. Words of Jesus again. Jesus had a lot to say about hell. If you actually do a Bible search and search hell and see what Jesus says about it, it's very good study. Uh, Jesus sheds a lot of light on this. Mark 9, 43 and 44, page 979. What about the biblical expression, unquenchable fire? Ah, what kind of fire? The fire that will never be what? Quenched. Quenched. Okay, continue reading. Ah, okay, so again, unquenchable fire, right? Not mentioned only once, but twice in this passage. And many point to these verses and, and say, See, that's eternal fire. The fire is not quenched. Their worm doesn't die. But notice, it doesn't say that their immortal soul doesn't die. It says their worm doesn't die. Right? So unquenchable fire. 
is a fire, listen to me, that no human hand can put out. It burns totally until it consumes everything. Right? I, I, I forgot to bring a match today to do an illustration. Um, can you guys fetch a match for me? How fast can you fetch one for me? <laughs> In 10 seconds, okay. So, uh, this was a good illustration that uh, one person did about unquenchable fire. Don't run away. I'm not trying to burn the place down, all right? <laughs> but uh, this, uh, this, uh, this evangelist, he actually tried to demonstrate what unquenchable fire is. And so he had a match, and uh, he lit that match. And uh, we don't have that match yet? Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, well, he lit that match, and the match was burning. And he let it burn. All the way till it got to the, reached reach the end of his, his fingers. And so he, uh, he licked his lips, and he uh, tried to catch the match head. And it kept burning. He says, I'm not quenching it, I'm not quenching it, I'm not quenching it. He flips it over and the fire burns completely the entire matchstick. And then he asks the, the audience, did I quench the fire? What would you say? No. no. He didn't quench the fire, did he? Okay. It's a <laughs> you gotta do it now. No, I gotta do it. Uh, Alright. So, just in case. Okay. Okay, so here's the fire. I'm not going to quench it, he says, right? So the fire is burning. He allows it to burn. And then, I don't know if we'll have time, but yeah, he, he burns it all the way down to the very end of the matchstick. And he flips over, he catches the other end, and it burns it completely. He says, I'm not going to quench it. 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 Right? And so this is taking longer than I thought. <laughs> but you guys are all mesmerized, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Whew. I'm not going to quench it. I'm not going to quench it. I'm not going to quench it. Is it still burning? Yes. Don't try this at home, all right? Did it go out? Yes. Did I quench the fire? No. no. And so when it's saying unquenchable fire, it means that the fire would not go out until it did what? Its job. Its job. Completely consumed everything. And the fire goes out after that, doesn't it? Right? And so that's what unquenchable fire simply means. It means that nothing can quench this fire from doing its work, right? Till it's totally, and what is that work? To totally consume what is burning, right? And so let's take a look at an example of this. Jeremiah 17, verse 27. Jeremiah 17, verse 27, page 748. We're on table number three. 748. Jeremiah 17, 27. 
And look at this example of how the Bible explains unquenchable fire. This is a very good example. Let's take a look. Jeremiah 17, 27, page 748. So God says that He's going to kindle a fire within the gates of where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and it shall not be what? Quenched. Now some people say, ah, you know, when they're talking about unquenchable fire, they have to explain this verse, right? This verse is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed by the by the Babylonians, in, and, and again in AD 70 by the Romans. And uh, what kind of fire burned Jerusalem? Unquenchable fire. So in both cases, the fire was started by armies, yes or no? And they could not be put out until they consumed the gates and the buildings of the city. So we must ask, is Jerusalem burning tonight? Has it burned for 2,000 years? Based on this text... You know, I've been to Jerusalem. That's me there. And I can assure you that no tour guide showed us a site where the unquenchable fire was still burning in Jerusalem's gates. There was nothing like that. (laughs) Right? And friends, Jerusalem has not been burning for 2,000 years, nor is it still burning at all. But was it an unquenchable fire, yes or no? Yes. An unquenchable fire is one that no human hand can put it out. Are you following? And so we see the great goal of Jesus is to lovingly save men and women, but if they rebel against His salvation, an unquenchable fire is going to consume all sin in the universe. One day, not one ash of sin will remain. God is going to do a thorough job. God is going to do a complete job and He's going to be done with sin forever and ever. And one day, the only thing that will reign will be holiness. Will be righteousness. And God will sit upon His throne with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and believers who trust Him will live with Him throughout all eternity. Sin will not remain in some... In, in, in hell someplace. Sinners will not remain in hell someplace. The devil will not remain in hell someplace. None of that's going to remain. Because God wants it to be gone. Now follow this reasoning carefully. Think this through. Before the rebellion in heaven, was there any sin in existence? Hmm? No sin. Right? In the universe. There is no sickness, no suffering, no death, yes or no? Do you think that God is not going to completely restore the universe? Do you think that God is going to leave the blot of sin in the universe? Do you think that God is going to leave the stain of sinners in the universe in a place called hell? It just doesn't make sense. How can He completely restore if sin still exists? If God is all-powerful, He can destroy sin completely. Amen? And that's exactly what He's going to do. So number nine, what about the biblical expression forever and ever? Well, Pastor Brian, there's a lot of verses that say that they're burning forever and ever, and how do you get around that? 
Well, let's take a look at Revelation 14.10. There's a term, there, there, this is how this term forever and ever is used. And many people say, ha ha, see, they burn forever and ever. How do you explain that? So let's take a look. Revelation 14, verse 10, page 1184. Revelation 14, verse 10, page 1184. And we are at which table? Table number 5. Table number 5. If someone can read Revelation 14, 10, page 1184. And verse 11. Okay, so this is talking about uh, those who receive the mark of the beast, how they will receive this torment. And it says that the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Okay, now that certainly seems to imply forever and ever. Let's take a look at another text that implies the same thing. Revelation 19, verse 3, page 1187. Page 1187, we're going to go to the next table, table number 6. Table number 6, 1187. We're going to have someone read that for us. Revelation 19, verse 3. All right, stop right there. So it says, talking about the destruction uh, of Babylon, says the smoke rises up forever and ever. So we've just seen a list of verses in the Bible that describe the fires as eventually going out, right? But here, in these verses, it seems to be the exception. It talks about the smoke going up forever and ever. And friends, is there anything in the Bible that can help us reconcile these two seemingly opposing ideas? The Bible does not contradict itself, does it? It doesn't contradict itself. So, do we try to do we throw out dozens of verses or try to understand what the Bible is truly teaching on this on this point? We see, friends, we what we need to learn, what does it mean when the Bible says forever? We need to understand how the Bible writers use that word forever. And forever in the Bible can be translated until the end of the age. Sometimes it refers to a limited time. And so notice these examples. Okay, and I, I uh, encourage you to write these down. And I'm just going to go ahead and go through these, uh, but write them down. Exodus chapter 21, verse 6. Right? Take a look at what forever means in these contexts. Then his master shall bring him, that's his slave, to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him, how long? Forever. So there's the slave, right? Who says, I want to serve my master forever. And so to, uh, he makes uh, this 
this promise. And so to signify that, the master takes him on the door and he pierces his ear with an awl, right? And it says that he shall serve him forever. What does forever mean? Till he dies. Yes or no? Yeah, that, that's, that slave or that servant is not still alive today, right? <laughs> that wouldn't make sense. <laughs> okay, take a look at another one. 1 Samuel 1, 22. Uh, as uh, Hannah is talking about her son Samuel, the miracle child, she says, I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there, how long? Forever. Is Samuel still serving in the temple today? No, of course not. What does it further, further tell us in verse 28? It says, Therefore I also have lent them to the Lord. How long? As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So Samuel served God. He was given to the Lord to serve God forever. How long was that forever? As long as he lived. Right? So here's the key. In verse 22, it says that he would go up there forever. Verse 28 says he would be there as long as he lives. That's what forever means. And we see that the wicked are in the flames until the end of the age, until they are totally consumed. Does that make sense? Does the Bible explain itself? Yes, it does. And when Christ comes the second time, the wicked, the unbelievers, are reserved to judgment. Now, question number 10. We're running out of time, so I'm going to try to get through this quickly. Doesn't the parable of the rich man and Lazarus support an ever-burning hell? Right? So people, you know the story. How many of you guys know the story of the rich man and Lazarus? We know. I think so. And people use that to say, ah, see, ever-burning hell. People are going to be burning forever. They're going to be in agony. But let's take a look. What does the parable of the rich man and Lazarus mean? You know, no, and first of all, notice this is a parable. <laughs> okay, parables are like uh, Aesop's fables. Okay, they're stories that are not necessarily true. Right? They are just made to convey a very strong lesson or point. And Jesus often spoke in parables to teach a very important lesson about the kingdom of God and other things. And so this is from Jesus' own words where he says that a rich man was in a place of torment after he died. And if Jesus said it, we should take it seriously and just not glaze over it. This story was, in, was in a fifth in a sequence where Jesus taught that we cannot serve God and mammon or money. Right? So the context we got to understand why is he telling this parable. He's talking about money, right? In, in the first four parables before this parable, this parable also connects with money, but he's not going to talk about money, 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 and then all about hell. That doesn't make sense, right? The context is definitely in line with Christ focusing on a particular topic, which is about how we cannot serve both God and mammon. And Jesus tells a parable of a rich man who ate and lives scrumptiously while a poor beggar named Lazarus would hope for a few crumbs for the rich man's table. And both men die. Lazarus goes to meet Father Abraham while the rich man goes to a place of torment where he pleads for Abraham to send Lazarus with a little water to cool his tongue. And the question... 
The question simply comes to how to interpret this parable. If we interpret all the details of all parables literally, that's going to be very difficult to get around these points. Point number one, if we take this parable literally, that, Abraham, that this man went to Abraham's, the poor man went to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's bosom must be very large. If this story is literal, and the place where we go when we die is Abraham's bosom, he must have had a very, very large bosom. But we know that this cannot be taken literally because we know, based on two nights ago, on the study of death, the Bible tells us that Abraham is not in heaven, but awaiting the resurrection, according to Acts chapter 2 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. And also, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, tells us, the Bible tells us that the dead know nothing. So very clearly, in light of that, we know this parable has to be figurative. Okay? Because it cannot contradict the Bible. And also, if we take this literal, we then can conclude that people in heaven can see and have conversations with those in hell. But, no, but they don't converse. The Bible tells us, we learned that two nights ago, that the dead, according to Psalms 115.17, do not praise the Lord. They're not in heaven or hell because John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in that which they are, that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So very clearly, Abraham is one of those who are waiting for the resurrection of life. He has not gone up to heaven yet. This is figurative. And so also... If you say that a soul is in hell, it's talking about physical things. It's talking about fingers, eyes, and tongues, about this rich man and what he's experiencing. According to Jesus, now back to that text I told you to remember. Remember that text? Matthew 10, verse 28. It said, which parts of this person's body and soul wind up in hell? Both parts. Both body and souls in hell, right? According to this parable, right? He can feel the agony. He's like, please put water on my tongue. You know, he, he, his body is still intact. His soul is still there. But according to Jesus, what happens when you're in hell? Both body and soul are destroyed. So this has to be figurative. It has to be. And Job 14, verse 12 says, Man lies down, does not rise till the heavens are no more. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 6 says that when someone dies, their feelings die. Their love, their envy, their ha hatred has all perished. So there's no feeling of agony while he's in hell. Because he doesn't know anything. This is figurative. And we see, why did Jesus give this parable? To confuse us? No, friends. In this parable, Christ was meeting the people on their own ground. Because did you know, during the time of Christ, that many people accepted the doctrine of a conscious state of existence between death and the resurrection that was held by many in Christ's day. Many people had a messed up understanding due to the Greek influence and Greek mythology they had wrong ideas of what happens in the afterlife. Even the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, right? And so we see that Jesus knew their ideas, knowing where they're at, he gives them a story that they can relate to. 
very easily, right? Putting, all, putting aside all theological things. He's just putting out a story for them to just kind of think. So like, if I, like for example, if I say, one day Alice was in Wonderland. Automatically, what do you think? Am I talking about a literal story? No. I'm talking about what? A fairy tale, right? You guys already are associated with that. You guys already know that. Jesus was doing the same thing here. He was actually teaching them that we see that the uh, rich man, the Jews believed during that day that riches were a sign of divine favor and poverty was a sign of divine displeasure. Jesus turns it around. He shows that God judges man on how they lived and the writings of the Bible are sufficient to reveal our duty to our fellow man. The parable provides a vehicle to make the teaching startling, startling, startlingly clear to the Pharisees in his audience. And the scripture says clearly that the wicked will be as though they have not been. Sin destroys, it destroys our lives here, and it will destroy them for all eternity. Jesus offers the abundant life. And it says in Matthew 13, verse 50, And they will be cast in the furnace of fire, there will be wailing of gnashing of teeth. Why this mental agony? Because, because they know what they could have had. They know that they could have lived, but now they're lost. Christ made provision to save every human being. Christ walked into the fires of hell and experienced it so that we don't have to. There's no smoke or flame on Calvary that day, but Christ tasted the mental agony of every lost soul. And friends, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. Death, period. Yes? It doesn't say the wages of sin is eternal torment, does it? Because think about it. If Jesus died on the cross to pay our penalty of death, and the wages of sin is not death, but the wages of sin is everlasting torment, did Jesus really pay for all the extent of our penalty? If the punishment was everlasting torment, did Jesus pay the penalty for us? No. Jesus will have to suffer for eternity in order to secure our salvation if we believe that hell burns forever and ever. If we believe that the wages of sin is eternal burning forever and ever, Jesus did not pay our penalty. Jesus had to suffer forever if that was the case. But we see the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that penalty of the second death so that we would not have to. So question number 11, last question for tonight. How does God feel about the destruction of the wicked? Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 23 says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? What a question! Before the whole universe, he asks it, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked shall die? And following verses, notice what he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn 
and live. He says, I have no pleasure. My fiery presence will consume and burn up sin at the end of time. Sin will be no more at the end of time. But there, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And thank God that He reaches out to you and me. Thank God that He offers us life. So not, that, not one man, woman, boy, girl needs to be lost. We can look forward to eternal life with Jesus. We can celebrate with gladness. We can rejoice throughout all eternity. Tonight, deep within your heart, you want to say, Lord, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you for the truth that sin will not remain, but it will be consumed. Thank you for the truth that sin will be destroyed forever. Thank you for the truth that God's plan of love will sweep the universe clean of sin. Thank you for the truth that you don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but you reach out to us with an invitation to live, to enjoy life in all its abundance, in all its fullness. And friends, how many of you tonight would like to bow your head in prayer and say, Lord, tonight, you please take that sin that we've done away with forever, and I would like to be counted among your people throughout all eternity. Is that your desire tonight? Would you pray with me as we pray in closing? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've showed us the clear character of God. A God that does not revel in the agony and the eternal torment of lost sinners, but you allow them to make their choice because you respect every human being's power of choice and free will. And Lord, tonight we want to make that choice exercising our free will to say, Lord, we want to be counted among your people. We want to be counted among your family, which will be in heaven, in that heavenly home for all eternity, where sin and sinners and the devil and all that we know in this life will be no more, but it will be a world made new. Lord, please, to begin, make a new heart in us, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.